Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Tonight on The Readout. The thing that bothers me the most, it's just so many children that is being brutalized and killed by the police. Hopefully we can help another kid and another family not go through something like this. Yet again, black parents grieve a son's death from police brutality. It's a story that dates back to the very origins of America. And it's a history that conservatives are fighting very, very hard to eliminate from our schools. Also tonight, the unanswered questions in Tyree Nichols' death and the police chief responsible for hyper-aggressive police units with names like Scorpion and Red Dog. Plus, the possibility that a former FBI official accused of secretly working for a Russian oligarch could have played a role in tipping the 2016 election to Donald Trump. We begin tonight with the fallout over the tragic death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of five Memphis police officers. Now, if you have a heart, what happened to the 29-year-old father, skateboarder, FedEx driver, and amateur photographer should outrage you. It should shock and disgust you, as should the so-called brothers who chose to behave like a little blue gang rather than as black men. But it damn sure shouldn't surprise you. What happened to Tyree Nichols was as American as apple pie. From the start, the European colonies in the Americas were designed to produce two kinds of people, subjects and citizens, and violence was at the center of it all. Even once they left Europe in the early 17th century, the colonizers of this continent remained the subjects of the European kings. Their citizenship existed at the pleasure of the monarchies of England, Spain, and France. Whatever your wealth or land holdings, if you were not the king, you were his subject. But with an ocean between them and the kings, their courts and their armies, these European lords in America increasingly yearned to live free of that status. And this vast, beautiful land rested through extreme violence from the grasp of the indigenous. Every man could be a king, the citizen of a new republic, invested with natural rights and subjects of his own, his wives, his daughters, his indentured servants and his slaves. But holding hostage thousands of African men, women, and children strong and hardy enough to have survived the stress and disease of being shipped like kindling across the ocean and the searing hot sun of the plantation fields, particularly in the large numbers a plantation required, came with tremendous risks. The most pressing being uprisings and rebellions on plantations where white slaveholders were often quite outnumbered. And unlike the history that you learned in school, slave uprisings were constant from not long after 1619 right through the Civil War. And they happened everywhere, from New York to Virginia to South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, and Florida. No matter what the planters did, these Africans just wouldn't stop resisting and trying to free themselves, keeping the unpaid workers on the plantation and from violently overthrowing the system and maybe physically harming the people who claimed to own them, required extraordinary violence. And so the planters 
created slave patrols drawn from a social station below the planter class, almost all white, but every so often a handful who are black, who could control the enslaved, threaten them with whippings or death in order to keep them from running away, catch them when they did, and instill the kind of terror required to put down rebellions and keep black captives from rebelling as they endured rape, forced human breeding, physical brutality, and the selling of their children. In short, the planters invented the police. And the violence was the training. The violence was the point. And as the planter class grew richer and more determined to shed the last vestige of the kings, the taxes that cut into their slave-generated wealth, the situation came to a head. In Virginia, in 1775, here is a clip from the 1619 Project documentary on Hulu. But when enslaved people continued to self-emancipate and presented themselves to Dunmore, he saw an opportunity to shore up his ranks by declaring he would free any enslaved person who agreed to fight against the colonists. Dunmore issued that Emancipation Proclamation November 1775, and that Emancipation Proclamation infuriated white Southerners, because this building is supposed to symbolize white rule over blacks, and now the guy inhabiting that building has turned things upside down and is leading blacks against whites. So you have this situation where many Virginians and other Southern colonists, they're not really convinced that they want to side with the Patriots. And this turns many of them um, towards the revolution. Is that right? If you ask them, it did. 404 years later, the United States is still a land of subjects and citizens. I mean, it's more subtle, of course, but the basic structure is still the same. White Americans, unless you are poor or disabled, enjoy the full benefits of citizenship. You can generally vote without impediment, as long as you're not a woke student who prefers the convenience of a Dropbox. Your family has never faced violent reprisals for trying to go to school or to work. You can live wherever you want without fear of reprisal, rejection, redlining, artificially reduced property values, or your neighbors calling 911 because they don't believe you live there. Historically, America's citizens have felt free to lynch, to riot, numerous times from Reconstruction through the 1930s, all the way up to January 6, 2021. They have felt entitled to overthrow the government when they don't like the outcome of an election. As a citizen, the police generally serve and protect you, your property, and your social comfort. Citizens feel free to scream at the police when they're pulled over or even to swing their fists at them. They get fed by the police after they gun down a church full of worshipers. They calmly surrender after committing a massacre. But those in this country who are still treated as subjects, black folks, regardless of wealth or status, brown folks, AAPI Americans, poor white folks, non-white immigrants and others who live at the margins of citizenship, live with the constant risk of housing and job discrimination based on your race, your social status, your hairstyle, or your last name. Higher interest rates and inadequate services in the zip codes you somehow always seem to get routed to. You might face discrimination at the airport and extra surveillance based on the outward manifestation of your religion. And then there is the often rude, dismissive, cruel, and too often brutal and sometimes deadly policing, which again was designed to control you and keep you socially confined to a status of inferiority and fear, regardless of how fervently you comply, how high you raise your hands, or how much you scream or beg or cry out for your mom. 
And it literally doesn't matter whether the police officer is white or looks like you, grew up like you, or could without that uniform on be you. It's not the race of the officer. It's the design of the system. Again, occasionally, some of the slave catchers were black. Subjects endured the media and the National Guard, assuming they're in a riot at any moment, even though the cops who did the killing were arrested and charged. And even though it's the police who tend to break up black vigils with tear gas and batons, not the other way around. Subjects face disapproving questions about what they did to cause their own death. Subjects fear for their children every day of their lives, even when by the grace of God, they make it to adulthood because they understand that at any day or time, they could meet up with the wrong cop on the wrong day and become the next hashtag. And subjects often turn their despair on each other or on their own communities. Those are the two Americas. And now you understand why the right doesn't want your kids to know this country's actual history or for you to know it because they fear that if you knew, you might want to do something about it. In fact, you might even demand it. And joining me now is Mark Claxton, director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change. Uh, my friends, thank you both for being here. And, you know, I do want to start with you, Mark, because when I, you know, watched this video live with everyone else um, uh, on TV, um, it disgusted me, but it wasn't surprising to me. And everything that I saw happening in that video sounded to me like it is the training. 71 commands, put your, show me your hands, show me your hands where they've got the hands pinned down. Things he couldn't possibly do. Stop resisting, stop resisting when he's not resisting. Putting people in a position where you can't comply and yet they're yelling into the body cam, comply. To me, that just proves the point that I was trying to make, that policing is about control. Um, it's about um, putting a certain amount of fear into people. It isn't policing <laughs> in a lot of ways. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, let me assure you that you had the proper reaction uh, to observing on video a lynching. Uh, you, had the, you had everything in context. And uh, the feelings that you had watching that video, I had some of those very emotions as you were given some historical context to policing, the policing profession and this policing culture that we have. And it also gives some uh, significant context to how we get to the point where you have uh, uh, black police officers, if you will, buying in completely to the system enough that they would engage in the subjugation of their very people that they came from, that they understood the culture that they understand and come from. Uh, so it is very telling about the, the, the strength, the resilience, the stubbornness, the allure of toxic police culture. But it's also very important that we maintain this historical context that you laid out so brilliantly. Let me ask you this, Mark, because the, the two things that to me I hold in my mind is that what happened to these officers in terms of being, them being charged immediately with crimes, having their um, their brutality against this man exposed immediately. That's the way it should always happen. What I cannot imagine is five white police officers doing this to a black man and getting the video that quickly. What I cannot imagine is five black police officers doing this to a white um, person in Brentwood. 
<laughs> you know, or in a part of uh, Memphis that was affluent. I mean, the thing is, they understood not just what in their mind they could get away with, but they understood who they could do it to. In their mind, they could do it to him. Is that wrong to say um, as somebody who yourself uh, was a police officer? Uh, there is quite clearly a, a dynamic involved in this particular case that makes it unusual, if you will. And I think a lot of people have not really addressed it fully because we've been so focused in on the barbaric nature of this lynching that we haven't considered and examined the role, the continued role that race plays in policing in general and race is playing in this specific case. It is unprecedented, as far as I can tell, that you would have the victim be black, and that's common. But the multiple perpetrator, the multiple perpetrator officers are black, and the police chief, the commander of the police forces, is black. We have to examine that dynamic and, and these peculiarities, if you will, and keep them in context to the, the greater discussion about what happened to, to Mr. Nichols and what's been happening to communities of color, uh, uh, you know, since the beginning of time. Yeah. And Rashad, um, you know, I'm just going to put some numbers here. Washington posted the number of shootings a year. Um, in 2022, it was 1,096, more than in the year 2020, which was the where George Floyd was killed. Um, it, it's roughly three people killed by police per day. Um, and African Americans are killed at twice the rate of white Americans. You're in the reform business. Can this system be reformed? Well, this system actually has to have deep structural changes. It all depends on what your um, opinion and what your um, definition of reform is. And I think, Joy, your point around the structures is so incredibly important because now we are in the sort of trick bag zone that we're going to constantly be in when these moments happen. And so they fire the police officers. They um, they they indict them. Then we begin to hear comments. Well, it's not about race. Um, we did the things that we needed to do. And then they want us to say nothing more to see here. We're going to move forward. And we may hear um, announcements and proclamations from those in law enforcement who are active saying that this was heinous and this was outrageous and this is not who we are. When if you watch the video, these folks were these police officers were not doing this for the first time. They were not novices at this behavior. This was not something new for them. And so what ends up happening is they want to avoid any type of conversation about structural change. And they want to make us believe that they can fire their way out of this problem, um, just like they wanted to make us believe that they could hire more black police officers and that diversity alone would solve these problems. But the fact of the matter is, is that Every single time this happens, we never hear from those at high levels in law enforcement about the set of policies and structural changes that they will agree to. We are constantly as a movement coming to the table with a wide range of policy proposals from ending qualified immunity to pretextual um, uh, traffic stops to databases to all sets of things. And the only time that law enforcement ever comes to the table with anything, it's for more money for training that we know doesn't actually work. And so the fact of the matter is, is why do they continue to get to gaslight all of us as citizens and get to continue to be at the table making policies? 
if doctors and nurses were just killing people at a high level and not performing their jobs well, when we got to the public policy table around what needed to be done around health care, we probably wouldn't listen to them. But we continue to let law enforcement both police themselves, um, um, analyze what they're doing wrong, and at no time come to the table with any reforms besides firing a couple of people here and there when those people happen to be black. And isn't that in part because, uh, because uh, Rashad, the police unions have so much political power and pump so much money into the politicians who are supposedly going to make the reforms. So they are so beholden that they're that when they even speak about it, even, you know, when President Biden, who is good hearted man, when he speaks about it, they still talk about we need to get more money into the hands of the police departments. And somehow that's going to solve it and get more diversity, get more money. Joy, I have sat in the White House, in the Obama White House, with the head of the fraternal, the head of the fraternal order of police, who said in front of a room full of advocates, Brian Stevenson, leader of the NAACP, mayors, other law enforcement, said in the room, all of this talk of racial profiling was new to him. Not that he disagreed with our opinion about racial profiling, but that the very idea of it. We have seen um, the Fraternal Order of Police, according to the Chicago Sun-Times in Cook County, march on the district attorney, um, Kim Fox, who was implementing uh, changes to um, um, what type of crimes would be prosecuted so they weren't prosecuting poverty crimes. And, um, and they marched on her office, which is their constitutional right, but they marched on her office with the Proud Boys, a white supremacist, white nationalist group. It was reported in the Chicago Sun-Times. They took out pictures of Kim Fox's face and rubbed them on their crotches. And then the next day they get to put on their guns and their badges and go back into our communities to protect and serve us. And so this very idea that this is something that can be reformed without deep structural changes, without a new sort of um, vision for public safety and that we can just deal with law enforcement and we don't have to make investments in other things in our communities is a fantasy. The fact of the matter is, is if at any point in this conversation, sheriffs, uh, the police unions, the police foundations wanted something different, we would have something different, but they constantly stand in the way of change because they like what's happening. And by the way, there are police officers who are utterly heroic. I think of Harry Dunn, I think of Michael Fanone. Where is the national support for them? Because uh, from what I understand, Michael Fanone just simply gets screamed at, spat on and called a traitor for telling the truth about the brutality that was meted on him. So when you come out and you try to tell the truth, if you're that good officer, that good guy that wants to be a hero in your community, you are taking a risk by speaking out. And there is no support out there for you. But if you go along and get along you hang with the crowd, and in a way, that's how you keep yourself safe. That is not policing. That's something that I don't think we should be paying for with our tax dollars. Black folk pay, pay, pay tax dollars, too. Mac, Mark Claxton, Rashad Robinson, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, the release of footage of the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols actually raises more questions than it answers. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. 
Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The Scorpion Unit was put together to add extra visibility in the community and also develop relationships with community members. The acronyms stand for Street Crimes Operations to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods. The whole idea that the Scorpion Unit is a bad unit, uh, I just have a, a problem with that. That was Memphis Police Chief C.J. Davis defending the city's Scorpion unit after five members of that unit brutally beat Tyree Nichols, leading to his death. After the video of Nichols' beating went public, the police department deactivated that unit, citing the cloud of dishonor around it due to the heinous actions of a few. Well, the few that got caught. Chief Davis launched the Scorpion unit in 2019 in response to homicide numbers rising in the city. It's now drawing comparisons to Atlanta's Red Dog Unit, created in the 1980s, which she led from 2006 to 2007. Like the Scorpion Unit, it was used as an acronym standing for Running Every Drug Dealer Out of Georgia. That unit was disbanded in 2011 due to, wait for it, accusations of multiple violations of civil rights and use of excessive force. Joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton, host of Politics Nation and president of the National Action Network, and Tammy Sawyer, activist and former commissioner in Shelby County, Tennessee. Thank you both for being here. And Rev, I have to go to you on this first, because to me, if you're creating something called Red Dog and Scorpion, that doesn't sound like extra visibility and building community relationships. That sounds like intimidation. What do you make of the idea that this police chief presided over two such units? Well, well, all of us are looking at this. Clearly, she operated correctly in firing these policemen. But what about the structural change that we need, that these special units operating under different names around the country have been abusive? What we're looking at, Joy, is that we are now dealing with an era of diverse brutality. So it's all right if blacks uh, beat us to death uh, rather than whites. We were not looking for better beatings or beaters. We were looking to stop police brutality. The thing that is exposed in these tapes is that at no point does these policemen even say what they were uh, trying to stop him for, what they were arresting him for. When they open the door, they don't say, show me your license, show me your registration. They grab him out of the car and start beating him like they did this before. And I think that when we have units that are running around like posses and gangbangers, then we need to deal with, we don't need these units, no matter who authorizes them, no matter who authors them, and we need structural federal laws where qualified immunity and other things are taken off the table where policemen know they are liable and at risk for their actions. The, clearly, these tapes show they had no mind at all about that they were at risk. They thought by having their own body cameras and they were talking over what we were looking at, saying, oh, he won't give us his hands. Well, you've got his arms. You've got his hands. He's resisting. Oh, he's reaching for my 
gun. None of that on the video. What they forgot about is the overall cameras was going to tell the whole story. They got caught this time. We must not stop until we get federal law and structural change. And just stay with you for just a minute, Rev. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that Amadou Diallo was killed by one of these special units. The same exactly. group went after the late rapper ODB. The, these units were notorious in New York for harassing people. They made it scary to walk around just being black in the city. Can you just, for a moment, as somebody who has fought back these things since the late 80s, early 90s, these units, have you ever known them to do anything other than harass and brutalize people? These I mean, in New York, that's what they did. In New York, uh, uh, in other parts of this country where we've had to fight, and we've seen black officers before. If you remember Amadou Diallo, then you knew in 2006 Sean Bell. Those were black cops. Yep. Shot 51 times at Sean Bell on the night before his wedding. So when do we stop becoming episodal and wait on the next tragedy and start really dealing with the need for structural change. Those in the Senate that would not pass the George Floyd bill that said that we can't deal with qualified immunity, they are part of the blame of where we are tonight, and we have to keep the pressure on. And they think the unions have political power. We have political power if we use it and say this is non-negotiable. Uh, Tammy Sawyer, welcome to the show. Tammy Sawyer, um, this is what uh, Chief Davis said in an interview with the Memphis Community Appeal. Quote, four individuals have been killed in altercations in the Memphis police. In, in the, they, they said to her, four individuals have been killed in altercations with the Memphis police in the last few months. These are all very different situations with different circumstances that led up to a fatal encounter. Regardless, will this prompt a review of MPD's use of force policy? This is what she said. You know, it could. I'm really not as concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is the fact that last year we did have an uptick in assaults against officers with guns more frequently than, year, than years before. So naturally, our numbers were up because officers responded to being shot at. You know, there's a, there's a defensiveness, um, Ms. Sawyer, uh, when, when police officers are confronted with the idea that these kinds of tactics are dangerous to the community. What do you make of her answer? I think that C.J. Davis is towing the party line. As you mentioned, she comes from Atlanta and then she went to Durham and now she's in Memphis and carrying on the same tactics that she did in each of those cities. You both mentioned New York. Well, the Memphis Police Department is advised by former police chief Ray Kelly. And so broken windows policing is the law of the land and it is the law in Memphis. So our officers, whether they're black, white, Latino, they have carte blanche to treat people on the street however they want. What people have to remember is that Memphis is a city where 60% of the people are black, but the majority of those black people live below the poverty line with an average income of $26,000 a year. What we do continue to do is put 40% of our budget into policing and recruiting young officers like the five officers and the others who have not yet been uh, fired. And we put more into policing and more into putting bullies on the streets than we do into education and opportunity for our young black people and criminalizing them just as uh, C.J. Davis did in this quote. Can you imagine these officers operating in this way in more affluent or wider areas of Memphis, Ms. Sawyer? Absolutely. Absolutely not. Um, I come from an upper middle class background and rarely had encounters 
with police officers, black or white. Um, it's only until, you know, I moved locations and, and served in the North Memphis area that I began to see more police officers. There's invisible lines in our streets that they do not call, cross unless they're called. Um, most people don't have any interactions with the police officers, so they don't fear them if they're influent or that they're white. Um, and so because of that, we have issues with the majority of the people who have the economic power in our city are white. And so those people don't understand what the fear that black people have of these police officers when they're given uh, orders to use any force necessary to lower a crime rate that can only be reduced through opportunity and education. Uh, Rev, I know you're going to be giving um, the Tyree Nichols um, eulogy. Uh, how is the family um, doing? <clears throat> this family has been remarkable in their strength. Uh, when you hear the mother and, and stepfather talk about how they want to make sure that this does not happen to anyone else, and they're committed to a movement uh, uh, that will lead to structural change. They have not backed up one bit. And they've said, no, we are saying we don't want violence, but we want activism. We want people to stay out there and get this done. And we're going to Washington, and we're going to put the pressure and call names on those that are just received a, 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 an outstanding turnout of black voters, that they've got to deal with the racism in police enforcement. And when you look at the fact that these five cops and the rest that should be charged on, and fired have not ever, there's never been an accusation they've done this to whites. Uh, it is, you can be operating with racial profiling even if you're black. It is not who you are, it's who you are abusing that determines whether you're operating in a racial profiling and biased way. Uh, indeed. And as you said uh, the other day on Chris Hayes' show, the violence has already happened. So people worry about violence. Well, that's already been done. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and Tammy Sawyer, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Charges unsealed last week against one of the FBI's top spy catchers raised new questions about Russia's involvement in U.S. elections and high-profile investigations. More on that next. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Breaking news tonight, a bombshell from the FBI director. 11 days to the election, the feds investigating newly discovered emails related to the Hillary Clinton private server case found during a separate probe into sexting allegations against her top aide's husband, Anthony Weiner. New information still coming in. Donald Trump seizing on a stunning turn of events. You see that right there? That was probably the moment that Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. 
It sparked a lot of questions, not just about the Justice Department's decision making, but also about the FBI, because the push for that announcement was coming from the FBI's New York field office, which, according to Reuters, had a faction of investigators based in the office known to be hostile to Hillary Clinton. Fast forward to last week when Charles McGonigal, the former chief of the FBI counterintelligence division in the New York office, was charged with ties to a Russian oligarch. At the time, James Comey made his unprecedented public announcement in 2016. There was no bigger consumer of the Clinton email story than the New York Times. They ran story after story on her emails in 2016, devoting two thirds of the gray lady's front page to Comey's announcement. That was followed up a few days later by another helpful piece for Trump, citing unnamed intelligence sources headlined investigating Donald Trump. FBI sees no clear link to Russia, something that would later be proven untrue. All of this raises new questions as to how Donald Trump really won in 2016. And that is something Philadelphia Inquirer national opinion columnist Will Bunch explores in his latest column. Will Bunch joins me now. And Will, thank you for being here. Uh, your piece is excellent. It raises one question immediately in my mind. Is, should we be asking ourselves whether this former FBI leader McGonagall out of New York might have been the source of that New York Times story mm-hmm. that there were no ties to Russia? Because it seemed like he had ties to Russia. Yeah, no, absolutely. We should be asking that, you know, um, that second story you showed about the lack of, quote, clear ties uh, between Trump and Russia. I mean, we now know that story was false. I mean, a key premise of that story was that uh, Putin and and Russia were not trying to help Trump win the election. Well, the U.S. intelligence community, not much after that, found that that's exactly what they were doing. So what who was misleading the New York Times? Uh, you know, clearly that story hung on high-level intelligence sources and McGonagall was basically the top spy master in the New York office. And uh you know, as you pointed out in that great intro, uh you know, the uh FBI field office in New York was just the nexus of so much of this activity that was then leaked to the press and was overplayed by the media, especially by the New York Times. And, um, you know, polling gurus like Nate Silver said this absolutely was the decisive factor that swung enough votes in the last minute to Hillary. So we should rethink everything we think we know about what happened that October and what the FBI was up to now that we know that they had this corrupt agent. And we know that, you know, the between William Barr lying about the Mueller report, despite 34 some odd people convicted, ties to Russia proved in the report. Apparently somebody needs to tell Jim Jordan that he had to be schooled by that by Chuck Todd this weekend. But what we ended up having was this counter investigation to try to prove that the whole investigation into Donald Trump was a fraud. That came to nothing. Meanwhile, there is this huge story out there about whether Oleg Deripaska, this Russian oligarch, whether this guy who was in the FBI were actually trying to advance Russia's interest in the United States through Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is running for president again. Talk to me about what we should be focusing on when it comes to Oleg Deripaska, this Russian oligarch who seems to have ties to everything from Mitch McConnell to Trump and this apparent, I guess we'd call him a spy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Deripaska is kind of the zealot of this whole Trump-Russia scandal. He appears in the background everywhere, sometimes in the foreground. But um, I think really critical is this long-standing relationship that Deripaska had with Paul Manafort, who mysteriously became Trump's campaign manager in 2016. And we now know that 
Manafort was sharing important data from the Trump campaign, uh, polling data and data that could have helped Russia's internet trolls um, know what states to target with their with their internet trolling. Uh, you know, he shared that with a suspected Russian intelligence agent who was also part of this triangle with Manaport and Durapaska. And then how how does this FBI agent who is supposed to be investigating Durapaska then end up working for him a year or two later, if if that's indeed when it started? Um, yeah. You know, um, uh, I'd, I'd love to see the Times, given its role in disseminating the bad information, go back. I mean, I think they should apologize for their bad coverage, but I think they should also investigate how they were duped by these FBI agents and by their intelligence sources and, and share that with their readers and share that with the public. Because clearly there's a lot about this we don't know. And like you said, Trump's running for president again. McConnell's trying to be Senate majority leader again. Uh, you know, a lot of this ties into Ukraine, which is about the most important thing going in the world right now. And I think I think the public deserves answers that we don't have right now. And, and you, you know, all of the media bought into the her emails thing. Everyone was obsessed with it. Why do you single out right. the Times? Uh, well, as you showed, I mean, that that front page, uh, you know, with, with two thirds. And, you know, I mean, the Times is. <clears throat> the most influential news source in America in terms of setting the agenda for, um, you know, other outlets, whether it's other newspapers or TV or, or radio, um, you know, uh, they're really a leader. And also, again, I keep coming back to that other story about uh, the lack of ties uh, between Trump and Russia that wasn't true, because yeah. uh, that story really tamped down what could have been a potential scandal that could have really harmed Trump in those last days of the campaign. Uh, so yeah, that's why I think the Times is important. Yeah. Uh, well, Bunch, uh, love your writing. Uh, everyone should read it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Joe. I next. really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Up next, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits Israel amid renewed Israeli-Palestinian violence and a drone strike on an Iranian facility allegedly carried out by the Israelis. We'll be right back. Last month, Benjamin Netanyahu returned as prime minister of Israel. This time, he leads the most right-wing, religiously conservative government in Israeli history. This new ultra-right-wing government has pushed to strip Israel's Supreme Court of its independence, moved to expand settlements in the West Bank, condemned LGBTQ rights, and pushed for more religion in schools. These moves have left many inside the country and around the globe concerned that democracy in Israel is on the verge of collapse. Thousands have taken to the streets to protest. All of this serves as a backdrop to growing tensions in the occupied territories. On Thursday, an Israeli raid killed 10 Palestinians in the West Bank. Then on Friday, a Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in predominantly Arab East Jerusalem. The next morning, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot and wounded two Israelis again in East Jerusalem. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged calm and pressed for a two-state solution. At this stage, a nominal American script, since none of that is happening or seems likely to happen anytime soon. Blinken is set to meet with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas tomorrow. And joining me now is Trita Parsi, executive president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Trita, it's always good to see you. Um, and I'll note that the punishment for the thank you. Um, the punishment for that shooting by those two uh, Palestinians is that their homes are going to be destroyed and they're going to be denied. Their families are going to be denied 
um, the equivalent of Social Security benefits. So that's collective punishment. Um, this administration gives, I think it should give people pause. It's related to Maher Kahana. Maher Kahana's party is a part of the government. Um, they've relaxed. And if you don't know Maher Kahana, he is somebody who his Koch party called for separate beaches for Jews and non-Jews, said that non-Jews in the state of Israel should be without any national rights and without any part of political proceedings. Non-Jews should be obliged to assume duties, taxes, and slavery. He does not agree with slavery and taxes. If he who does not agree to that will be forcibly deported. Um, they shall not live—non-Jews are not to be allowed to live in the city of Jerusalem. And prohibitions on intermarriage. That guy is a part of Netanyahu's government. What's going on in Israel? It's a terrible situation, and I have to say, the Biden administration's policy has been to continue what the Trump administration did. The Trump administration recognized the uh, uh, Israeli annexation of uh, the Golan Heights, uh, essentially moved the, the embassy to Jerusalem, did all of these different things that numerous administrations prior to them had resisted doing. The Biden administration has not reversed any of these things. In fact, it is furthering the expansion of the Abram Accords, which essentially says, you know, let's just jump over the, uh, uh, move beyond the Palestinian issue, pretend that that is not the real conflict here. Instead, try to make sure that there's direct flights between Israel and the UAE. These different measures have done nothing to bring about actual peace to the region. In fact, I fear it's going to make the situation worse. The Israeli government is moving more and more to the right, and there's no consequences that the United States is imposing on, on Israel for doing these things that undermines U.S. interests. You know, the thing that does tie in with what Donald Trump could face here, there's a possibility, it's probably remote, that he will face some sort of indictment. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister there, is already under indictment uh, for, for, for various crimes related to financial fraud, etc. His moves with the Supreme Court could ultimately nullify his own indictment. Are we in a situation now where he essentially has placed himself above the law by constricting the Supreme Court in this way? Because people are literally in the streets, Israelis are in the streets protesting these changes. Yeah, I mean, Israeli democracy is facing a very, very tough test right now. The Netanyahu government or Netanyahu himself is doing things that he may be doing right now to save himself, but are going to have very dire consequences for Israel, which already has moved very much in an illiberal direction. And you're seeing the worries in many different places outside of Israel, who are, you know, who believe that Israel was a strong democracy and that that was one of the main attractions uh, for the U.S.-Israeli alliance. That is really withering away. And I have to say, one shouldn't be too surprised. This is an occupation of Palestinian territory that has been going on for decades. There's no way a country could remain a liberal democracy while at the same time engage in that occupation, which now some of the foremost uh, human rights organizations, including Israeli human rights organizations, uh, they describe as an apartheid system. You can't have that and a liberal democracy at the same time. And the other piece to this is this increasing conflict with Iran, something that Netanyahu for years seems to have been sort of spoiling for. Uh, these drone strikes into Iran, what's the impact? Well, I think that Israeli, uh, the impact militarily seems to have been very little, frankly, quite negligible. But I think from the Israeli perspective, it does give them several different benefits. One of them is that Israel has been under some pressure in Washington and elsewhere 
because it is not supporting the Ukrainians and it continues to have a rather extensive relationship with Russia. It's frankly probably the country that is the closest to the U.S., yet the furthest yeah. away uh, uh, from uh, the Ukrainians. And I think this gives them an opportunity to say, hey, look, we're doing something to help the Ukrainians. But in reality, uh, the military impact seems to be very little, but the risk of actually this escalating into a larger war is quite significant. Uh, Trita Parsi, always a pleasure. Thank you very much, my friend. I really appreciate Thank it. You coming so up. Cheers. Thank you. And coming up, the latest installment of the Devolder Files. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, another day, another addition to the Devolder Files. Among the many questions surrounding infamous New York Congressman George Santos, or Anthony Devolder, or whatever he's calling himself these days, the most mysterious involve his campaign finances. Since we last updated you on the talented Mr. Santos, the Federal Election Commission asked for answers about who his campaign treasurer is, since the person listed never actually took the job. And according to the Washington Post, the Justice Department is asking the FEC to hold off on enforcement while it conducts its own investigation. Among the questions that remain outstanding is where a seemingly broke Santos suddenly got so much money. What's the source of his more than $700,000 in loans that he gave his campaign? An updated filing last week showed that $500,000 of it did not come from his personal funds, as he claimed. A separate filing showed another $125,000 loan also did not come from his personal funds. The filings don't reveal where the money actually came from. But amid the seemingly never-ending intrigue surrounding his campaign, new reporting raises questions about Santos's previous unsuccessful 2020 run for Congress. A Mother Jones investigation reached out to some top donors to that campaign and found that many did not seem to exist. According to the report, among more than a dozen of the major donations to the 2020 Santos campaign, the name or the address of the donor could not be confirmed, adding that a separate $2,800 donation was attributed to a friend of Santos who told Mother Jones he didn't give the money. Just another allegation that could spell trouble for George, Anthony Devalder Santos, who, along with his campaign, have not responded to repeated quests for comment, since it's illegal to donate money using a false name or someone else's. And that's tonight's readout. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.